Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, and I am thrilled to be joined by one of my favorite people on the tennis tour. You hopefully follow him on Twitter and Instagram and other social media as well. He's the eyes of the people on the WTA tour. It is the photographer we know and love as Jimmy. Jimmy, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. A big honor. I'm very happy to be here and talk to you. Very happy to do this again. Full disclosure, we recorded an episode or an interview that I was planning on using back in, I think, 2017 that never got around to posting, even though it was good back then. If nothing wrong with the interview then. So we're going to do it again here. But a lot has happened in uh, the last three years for you in terms of you developing on tour. So we'll have an even fuller, hopefully more interesting story to tell this time. I want to go back to the beginning of you and me. I first found you on the internet back in 2015, I think it was. I was back then working, uh, starting up a fantasy tennis game, which has since gone away, called Racket Rally. I was trying to get photos of every player in the top 300 of both men and women, which was a challenge. And I was looking around on Flickr, I think, mostly. And then eventually I found your trove of photos. And once I found them, I was so upset I hadn't found them earlier because they were so much better than the ones I had been using for so many players. I remember specifically finding, like, 30 photos of Antonia Lautner. In that moment in my life, it was the most important gold mine I could possibly find. <laughs> so you've been shooting tennis for a while, I guess first as a hobby, I guess, or what was your, just talk about your sort of journey uh, with photography and with tennis. Uh, pretty much, I started shooting tennis in 2012 before I did, uh, I shot a bunch of motor racing. Okay. Back when I, I was still, had, I still had a day job in IT. Okay. And I did it as a hobby because like motor racing events are more like confined to the weekend. So it's something you can much easier do like yeah. in your spare time compared yeah. to tennis. And then I stopped for a while and I started watching tennis on TV. And at some point I started like combining the two passions. When I first took my camera to an exhibition match between Julia Gerges and Angelique Kerber in 2012. Okay. In Halle, yeah? Yes, exactly. That's in Halle, yeah. That was the first, the first time I shot, I shot tennis. Nice. And it instantly worked and it was fun. And I started just doing more because I got, instantly got, got hooked to it because of, I realized I'm pretty good at it. I wasn't very good as a motorsports photographer, more like... I imagine motorsports would be slight sidebar on that. I imagine that'd be hard. They're going so it, fast. It's it's hard and it's totally different because it's not really people-driven. It's very, like, object-driven. Yeah. Like, it's all about the machines and the cars and it's much less of a people thing than tennis. There's less, like, human emotion and stuff like that. So it's a totally yeah. different different ball game. No, but tennis, shooting tennis was instantly fun and I instantly got like, which probably like sparked the whole thing a bit. I instantly got great feedback online because I posted the photos from Holland and everybody was like, oh, these are so nice. And then once you get encouragement, like you keep going yeah. and I started looking up like local ITF tournaments and, and Back then, actually, there was quite a bunch of stuff like happening like real close to where I live. Like there was, there were like ITF tournaments in German Bundesliga, and I could go to these events like just for a few hours, like after work. And that's how I started. That's the thing. I mean, you almost have a trajectory, which is not really traditional, honestly, in tennis media generally. But you almost have a trajectory like a player. Like you started off at the Futures events nearby that were local and sort of worked your way up tier by tier. Um, I think we first met in 2016 here, I think. I think so, yes. In Brisbane. Yes. Oh, we're recording this in Brisbane. I don't know when this exactly will air. Yeah, I mean, you sort of built your way up in, through the tour and being independent and finding places to credential you. I know for a while you were working for a, a Turkish tennis outlet. Yes, I worked yeah. for Tennis Dunyasi, which is a Turkish tennis magazine. Yeah, and so what was it like deciding you had this IT job, uh, which was, a, I'm sure, a good stable job. Stable oh, but boring. Stable but boring. But what, what made you 
is sort of a common theme for a lot of tennis media. Courtney certainly has a similar story to this. What made you want to take the risk of leaving that sort of stable job behind and, make, and trying to make tennis a, a more full-time uh, pursuit for you? Well, first off, of course, shooting tennis is more fun because sitting behind the desk and like doing calculations and selling IT parts is not fun. But <laughs> what, also, kind of, what did you do in IT specifically? Uh, um, a friend of mine and I, re- we ran a, business, a wholesale business. We sold computer parts and computer systems and stuff like that. And you okay. had to deal with like customers who complain and all like the negative stuff. And it, it like it wasn't really fulfilling. Like like you said, it's, it's a job that, that pays the bills, but that was it. And, and I realized shooting tennis is fun, but I'm also very risk averse. So it took a long time for me to actually realize that this could be a career. But the good thing was I could like easily transition into it. I started doing like two or three like WTA tournaments per year and it just went from there. And, and once I realized there's opportunities to do this on a professional basis, I, I, I went for it. But if someone had told me like six years ago that I would be doing this full time, I wouldn't have believed it. So that's one of the questions Courtney and I get a lot. It's like, how do you how do you sort of break into being a tennis writer? And I guess for you, just for a similar question for photography, like what are the things... Um, what are the steps that you took? I don't know. If, and this, I always say to people, like, I don't think my path is necessarily replicable for everybody. And it's certainly not what I would recommend people do necessarily. But what were the sort of steps, this, the, the things you got that helped you sort of stair step along uh, into making this uh, a, a more sustainable, profitable uh, business for you that, as, as built? And how did the interest build, I guess? Well, the key thing is, I have to say, the key thing is social media. If I had just like worked for one website and sent them photos and that would have been it, it would have gone nowhere. But like Twitter and, and Instagram, it helps spread the stuff and you build a name for yourself and you build a brand, even though you're not even trying to do that. Like my, my goal was just like to post nice photos of players I liked. So it wasn't really, I didn't set out to like make this a career or I have like a plan to say like, oh, in five years, I want to do this professionally. That wasn't the case at all. It just like it all happened. And then you get to a point that people know your work even before they know you. Mm-hmm. And and they want to work with you, and then I got a got opportunities to work for like, for a big German car maker. Yeah, Porsche. Exactly, yeah. and and that's how it started, step by step, to become more of a professional business. Yeah, because you started sort of doing. You had a few interesting different sort of clients, I guess. You had Porsche and a couple other sponsors as well? Yeah, a bunch of sponsors and a bunch of players and it all... Yeah, and so I was going to get to that too. Individual yeah. players too. So how, did, how does that work? How did that work in the first stage? There were individual players, I guess, who sort of contract you or hire you to make sure they have photos of them. Yeah, exactly. Taken. Yeah. That also just, just works by word of mouth or simply by me, uh, them knowing me, they knew me before they knew me yeah. and they wanted wanted more photos and so they talked to me and we find an agreement and it's like on a per tournament basis but it really all it's all about like showing what you're doing and giving people the chance to approach you because if, if they don't know what you're doing you, you can't do that and I think what helped me a bit stand out is the fact that I'm that I'm not doing just not just tennis but only women's tennis mm-hmm. and I think that's a very it's a very specific kind of niche that makes it easier to to stand out and yeah. for people to notice for, to doing. build a brand exactly, exactly. Yeah, to build a so people know identify I remember the one tournament I think I was with you in Roland Garros qualifying one year when you were shooting for the Turkish magazine mm-hmm. Tennis Dunyasi and they asked you to shoot photos of one of the, the male Turkish players oh my God, that was Marcel so Ilhan that was I'm so curious just to, if you can sort of explain that cause how you built this niche and what it was like how different it was the one time you had to shoot men's tennis <laughs> it's well that well, the niche is I never liked men's tennis. I started watching tennis purely as a as a fan on TV. That's how I got in touch with tennis. I 
didn't know anything about tennis beforehand. I don't have friends who follow tennis, so it was a totally new thing for me. And I just got into it by watching on TV, and I started watching women's tennis. And I simply don't like watching men's tennis. I don't like watching it. I, I never liked it when I was just a fan, and I don't like shooting them. For that specific thing, unfortunately, that was like a condition to get like, to work for them. I had to shoot like a Turkish. Hopefully, players. a small price to <laughs> yes. pay in the end. Yes, but it wasn't wasn't fun at all. Like the whole like the whole movement set and all the jump shots and whatever. That's no, that's not me. What do you like most about shooting tennis? You talked a little bit about it comparing to car auto racing. Yes. But what are what do you enjoy when you're out there shooting tennis? And you've been this for a lot of years now. What do you? What is it about tennis that you find most aesthetically pleasing? I guess women's tennis specifically too. I think, like uh, aside from like aesthetically pleasing, I just like the, uh, that it's a people's business and it's peop- it's people-driven stories. It's all about the stories and the people and what they experience and capturing that is just really fun. The emotions, the good, the bad, and following people's journey. And yeah, I think like definitely, but I'm totally biased. I think women's tennis is much more pleasing in terms of aesthetics, like the way they move and. and I don't, I don't know. Something about the men's game just, just doesn't resonate with me at all. Like people never believe this. Like some, sometimes I talk to other people and they're like, oh, like you get to like shoot Roger Federer or whatever. I have never in my life taken a photo of Roger Federer of any <laughs> other men's player. Like I rather sit at my desk and do my taxes while the match is on. I just don't go out and do it. I, I just don't. That's a very German thing, by the way, because all you know, we we make jokes about Julia Gerges having her favorite hobby be doing her taxes, so that you have like tax hobby or not. You're not saying a hobby, but I, it's, it's amusingly German comment from you there. As you've developed relationships with players and with the WTA tour also, you've also gotten um, a lot of behind-the-scenes access yes. to the players, which has often yes. been pretty unique. Not a lot of photographers always get that. Can you talk about how that came about and what sort of what sort of moments you've been able to, to capture that way? Well, that comes as part of the uh, the job of working for being the official WTA tour photographer. That gives me access to, to uh, stuff other like press. The access for press photographers, as you probably know, being media yourself is, is limited. You you go and you shoot the matches, and th- and that's pretty much it. And the goal with the additional access is like to show the fans what they might not see otherwise, like players warming up and players talking before the match and that kind of stuff. And that that has been a really that has been a really scary thing actually. Like hmm. when I started working for the tour last no not last um in spring 2018 i'd already shot tennis like for five years and i knew my way around the tournaments but suddenly being in this position knowing you're in a position where usually like photographers are not allowed to be and you're kind of like i wouldn't say intruding but But you're in the inner sanctum exactly so the first the first few times really were really intense i tried super hard not to be in a way and and everything and but I think it's a very unique, unique thing to capture, and it's something that resonates with, with people a lot. Yeah, no, and you capture those kind of candid moments, or even I just was complimenting you earlier this week in Brisbane. You have, I guess, she was just hanging out in the hallway, and you got a great photo of Annette Contevite, sort of more of a portrait kind of thing. But it was really nice, and just kind of a nice sort of casual type portrait that wasn't like a big, you know, photo shoot type thing. But it was still it was very nice, and it's nice to have those sort of moments captured. You have a lot of, you know, players warming up in the tunnel players chatting with each other being friendly we just exactly walked, just walk kiki Perton just walked past us here and she's one of the players you know is very frequently like will be chummy with a with a opponent before a match and so capturing those sort of lighter side of the tour moments can be can be pretty pretty cool to see yeah especially because before people didn't necessarily get to see that kind of stuff so bringing something that new to the table that people haven't seen beforehand is a very is a very rewarding thing because i also like mainly i i'm just trying like to tell a story or like 
to tell the story the way I see the tour. Like, if you're like a traditional press photographer, you care about like you want to get a few backhands, a few forehands, and you want to get the photo of the the big trophy at the end of the week. That's your your goal because that's what your editor wants. And for me, it's it's totally different. I want to. The thing is, I started as a fan, so I still kind of have that mindset. I know what I would be interested in if I was still a fan, yeah. and I I just try to bring these things to people's attention like for example this week one of the biggest feedbacks and the biggest stories this story this week was actually maria sakari practicing in her new adidas gear okay that's something like a traditional press photographer wouldn't care about if you told them like maria sakari is practicing in like new clothes it's like no one's gonna put that on the front page of a magazine so no. why would a press guy care but for me this is this is a very this is an important story because i know it resonates with fans and it resonates with the players and so ever since working for the tour my 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 mindset has shifted a lot like to find these like things that are away from match coverage and yeah. more like the unique stories so as a, as a storyteller then what are the sort of stories that you think are the, the big stories of women's tennis i guess since you've been covering it more intensely the last few years i mean is there through your lens do you think there's sort of like a I, people talk about this obviously you know there hasn't been one dominant player on tour for this period it's been a here with a lot of different relevant players. Which I think is great. And on a sort of ensemble cast. I guess that makes it, not maybe the story isn't as obvious as it might be in other eras, but what what do you think has been the sort of, what is the story of women's tennis right now these days, or in the the last few years at least? I'm not sure it's a a story as such, but I I always like to like... uh show people that the cliches aren't true, like your standard cliche of the players all hate each other. That's, it's just, if you you work in tennis, you know that's just not true. So, So capturing moments that disprove this this whole theory that that's something and just give people like a feel for what the atmosphere is like and what, and what people are like i think that's so a few tech more technical questions i think people will be curious about this so what is your average day like at a, like let's say today today is a relatively more straightforward day on tour uh, we're at the quarter we're recording this on quarterfinal day uh, as julie shenley walks by waves we're uh, recording this on quarterfinal day at Brisbane, and so there's only matches right now on just the stadium. So one one match at a time, essentially. So it's one of your easier days you're yes. going to get on tour for yes. sure. But what is it like? What you you show up at before the matches? You what do you prepare? And what do you when you go out to court? What do you actually do there? Just walk through all those basics. Yeah, pretty much on a on a like first round day. Those are usually more the busiest. Like the first few days are always the busiest, especially at the Grand Slams where it's just insane. Like the first four days are just. Uh, almost too much to handle because there's too much happening but i get to site pretty early like an hour before match start and the first order of business is always grabbing a practice schedule to see who's practicing and together maybe that's also an interesting thing like players practicing together that's also that's a dynamic people like to see like players who maybe people didn't expect to be friends or be friendly with each other if they practice that's an interesting thing and then it's basically like trying to to cover as many matches as possible and in the earlier rounds it's all about time management because you always have matches happening at once and you want to make sure to be there for the key moment at as many matches as possible and yeah it's just all about really time management and trying to get a feel of what's happening do you are you trying to i know i've talked to some talkers i'm not sure if you're the same way who try to time themselves to be at match point type moments as many matches as possible is that important to you or not that, not as much that is sort of that is that is yeah that's one criteria ideally if you go to a match if it's an early day you want to you want to stay at the match long enough you have enough photos to tell the story that's like an emotional reaction maybe a celebration after a big point so if the goal is always to have like a set of four or five photos that 
can pretty much tell the story of the match who won, who lost, what happened. Yeah. And but in the early rounds, it's really it's just about like checking boxes, really. Yeah. When you get to a court, where do you prefer to shoot from? Uh, what, what sort of what sort of angles or positions? And it can I, maybe varies a lot court by court. There's different photo pits, different places, different courts probably have different places they allow you to shoot, whether you're allowed to shoot around the stands or not. Or, yes, yeah. that's, so that's, t- that's, talk through a bit about the, your, your positioning and your strategy there. That's very different. I usually like to be in a photo pit, which means you get to be you get to be very uh, you get to be very close and also very low. That's an angle I like because it makes the players look bigger and more more important, more like more hero-esque. Okay. And yeah, so pretty much you'll find me on the sidelines as low as possible. Oftentimes I'll sit on the ground because you really want to go as low as possible because that gives you like a clear, clear background of the sky or the stands. There's many photographers prefer to shoot from up top. So you get like the cordless background. I do yeah. it sometimes, but not as much because I, I like to be up close to, to capture emotions and stuff like that. But as you said, it really, it really varies from, from court to court. I have a bit more freedom now moving around. But especially like at the Grand Slams, it's like the space is very confined and oftentimes you're lucky to get any space at all. That's, 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 and also that's the thing that makes time management so, so tricky because people don't remember like, like spectators, we have to wait to get into a court for a changeover. Yeah. And oftentimes you just show up for a match and it's the last changeover and it's like the last game and you just don't get in. Yeah, that's, that's rough. Do you, I know I've also talked to photographers who try to position themselves like near or behind or in front of a player's box, a yes, player's that, team, and so that, you get the reaction exactly. facing you. That, you is, that, that is standard, yeah. yeah. It's very annoying at some tournaments, the, uh, the teams are set opposite of the photo pit, which means you always get the back of the player when they react to something. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much, that's a standard thing. I, when I walk into a stadium, like having a look around, trying to see where the team is sitting and maybe if there's family around where the players look to, that's, that's pretty much standard procedure. You've built a, a big following, as you mentioned, on social media, first from probably tennis fans, but very quickly also from tennis players who found you quickly to be a reliable source of great photos of themselves and built up a relationship with you know their teams, with their agents, with their coaches, things like that. And I'm curious just what that's been like sort of developing the player relationships, whether, whether it leads to you know separate contract work for them as official clients or just sort of as colleagues who you can you know still support as part of the, the tour what has that been like getting to know do you remember the first player who sort of reached out to you and, and what that was like and or or how it starts there's so many now you're there's, yeah, the searching fr- yourself mind, I'm like, no i don't sh- i don't think i can pin down the first now but yeah it's it's definitely it's beneficial because you want to you want to know you want to know the people you're you're shooting because again it's it's, it's a it's a personality driven sport for me and it's a story driven sport and you want to know people's story and why a moment is important for example like one of my favorite moments this year was christian's u.s open run mm. because it's it's such a huge story for her to get to get that far but you ha- actually have to know that backstory how long she tried to get into a main draw and when matches there everything with her parents Ex- and everything exactly yeah. and, and and that's that's the kind of knowledge that makes you makes you appreciate the moment and makes you capture the moment correctly if you're not just seeing one tennis player winning a match and what does that mean so yeah i'm always i'm always trying to get to know the people i'm, sh- I'm shooting and it, it, it makes everything easier for everybody i mean the players are 
most of them, I hope, comfortable around me, which makes it easier to have situations like where I'm shooting in the hallway before the match because yeah. it's it's a familiar face and they know me and they know from social media, they know what I do and what I try to achieve. They know I'm not there to put anybody on the spot or like make anybody look bad. They understand what I'm trying to do and I think that's a very important thing. As somebody who's also, you know, sort of in a more up-close relationship building role as a photographer, I'm curious also how you deal with tougher moments on court, whether it's a player crying, whether it's a player breaking a racket, things like that. Those are, especially working against WTA, maybe those are things you probably steer away from highlighting now or not? No, no, whatever happens on court is, is fair game generally. Yeah. And like breaking records, that's like standard stuff. I mean, we all have like <laughs> bad days. I can break my camera, sometimes I wish I could. But now, uh, yeah, but other stuff can be tough. Like my biggest fear is that I, and it hasn't happened yet, and I hope it never will, that I have to like, be there when someone gets like seriously injured yeah that thankfully that has never happened before but yeah that's something i wouldn't wouldn't want to wouldn't want to be there for because like i, I i'm not sure how to deal with that actually yeah. no, that'd be, that'd be tough and for sure. yeah and i would i think yeah i would definitely show more restraint than like like other people i remember like you often see it when players are like crying during like uh, medical timeouts and stuff like that and there's like other people who don't know who go like crazy on taking photos from all angles. I kind of I don't distance feel, or yes, respect. I yeah. don't I don't feel like doing that. What is it that keeps this sort of interesting for you, I guess? Because I think there will be people who would probably say that um, you know, oh you're just taking photos of people hitting the ball over and over again. I mean, do you do things and obviously you're talking about all these different stories you tell, but I'm curious if you do things consciously or not to sort of mix it up for yourself, to give yourself new challenges. Because you do have a you know, I mean you I don't know if people say you have more as a writer I'm curious if you, what you think if we have which one of us gets sort of more free reign as a, for what we get to do we each have sort of an assignment and a, and a space to sort of fill but you can uh, you get, you know you have to you, there are certain boxes you have to check but also you have a bit of free range too and you've done more artistic stuff you've done some black and white stuff I'm curious like what yeah, what you do to, to make things interesting to shake up uh, what could from the outside people think be a sort of repetitive job of shooting tennis balls getting hit I mean, sometimes it's just little things, like if players, like, uh, if we have, like, outfit changes, if it's a new part of the season, everybody's wearing a new kit, that makes it automatically makes it interesting because it's a new look. But it's just the way tournaments work that, that keeps it interesting. I mean, this week, as you said, like, I have done the portrait stuff, I have worked with the future stars, I, like, accompanied the, some players into the city for a city trip, and it's, that kind of stuff keeps it fresh. Every, Naomi Osaka in her helicopter. Exactly. That was the first time I ever showed a player coming out of a helicopter. That was very exciting. <laughs> so it's it's pretty much just the whole the the whole schedule that keeps it interesting because unless unless we're at the sharp end of a tournament right now, it's very it's very match focused. You go it's the, the big match time, but especially the early days of tournaments, there's always like new stuff to see, and then there's practice, and you have like players warming up, like playing ball with each other or whatever there's always we had Ashwari playing cricket on the yeah. field out here so there's every day there's there's something happening like my an internal goal of mine is always like to have every day have like one shot like stand out as much that I would want to look at it like half a year later and still re like recognize that moment that it's not part of a blur like just random tennis photo and I pretty much achieve that every day. So oh, that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good strike rate. What is this sort of community? Because in, in tennis writing, we are a bit more reliant on each other as writers to like make sure that the good questions get asked in, in press conferences. And, you know, if someone shows up and asks bad questions, they can throw off a press conference and hurt our work. T photography, I don't know. Is it, is it more solo or how much do you 
what is the sort of community or collaboration or lack thereof or competitiveness that exists uh, in a, a, a tennis environment? It's it's interesting. <laughs> Courtney just walked by and it's mocking taking photos of us. The thing is, uh, I'm what I do. No one else does. Like there, I, there's no ten, other tennis photographer who does as much like during the season. So at most tournaments. I don't have photographers I see every day. There's like a community of photographers that focuses on the Grand Slams that I see a bunch of times per year. But it's not like, unlike with the riders where there's more like a close-knit community, it's pretty much I'm more on my own because at most tournaments, it's just like local people. Like you have Australian photographers here, like photographers from Brisbane. And when we go to Adelaide next week, there's still photographers there, but it's local people from Adelaide. And I'm yeah. pretty much the only one who's at every single big tournament during the course of a season. So. Uh, it's it can be competitive, especially at the Grand Slams, because if people only focus on those few big tournaments per year, you have to make all your money during those few weeks, and that leads to people being being can being competitive. But that doesn't concern me as much because I'm not part of that that group. As so, such. so competitive, I'm guessing for like the best seats in the pit. That yes, kind of thing. that's yeah. the thing. And that at Grand Slams, like that's the thing. Like sometimes if we start to go like third or fourth round. And like this, it's this, it's the second set of a big match. There's sometimes the issue that there's no space. Like you literally, as a photographer, you don't get in because it's full. So and yeah. that's that starts when people start pulling rank, and I was here first, and that kind of stuff. So, but I never had any issues with that. I I do, and I think like most of my colleagues realize I do my own thing because I focus on the women, and what I do for the tour is, def is different to press photography anyway. So I've kind of carved out my my niche but I got along fine with many of them like like one of the main like tennis legendary photographers Clive Brunskill from Getty yeah. who's a mate who's super nice and I like to chat to him and I, I'm always happy when I see him so it's fine good you mentioned some bit of the travel but I want to get into your travel schedule so because you and Courtney also but you maybe even more amaze me with your sort of stamina for the amount of travel you do on tour so can you walk through for people like what your travel schedule is expected to be in 2020 Yes, um, yeah. So we're starting in Brisbane. Starting in Brisbane, I'm going from here. I'm going to Adelaide, and I'm going to the Aussie Open. Then I get five days at home, and then it's off to Saint Petersburg and the Middle East. And from now until the end of the French Open, I'll be home for 17 days. Total. Good lord! And you, but you, but you seem ha you're happy. You say that with a smile, a genuine yes. smile. <laughs> because I like traveling, and I like I like being on tour. I like being around these people, and everybody's nice. And it's like it's kind of my home away from home. Also, I don't have have an issue with like living in hotels. Like I know some people complain about, oh, like I need a very specific type of, of bed or whatever, or I need like a few days just to feel home somewhere. Uh, once I've unpacked my suitcase, I'm I'm fine. So that's that's not an issue for me at all. What are your uh, favorite courts to shoot in the world? Do you do you have a court that like every time you get to the one tour, like wow, like I love this court. I love the light. I love something about this court. This easy. The, the clay season is is, uh, is very like Madrid is very nice because you have like the, the bright orange clay when it like the sun hits it especially if you shoot from above that's and all the metal around does that help no that doesn't no it, okay. it's just like it's the orange background that looks really nice and yeah there's 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 pretty much there's something nice at every tournament and that's another thing that keeps it unique because people think like oh it's always it's a tennis stadium it always looks the same it does not like even even the sun the sun in, in your walls looks vastly different to the sun here like if you could even like take the recognizable court backdrop away and i could still probably tell you where a photo was taken just by the way like if it's either like harsh desert sunlight or the sun here or, no. or if it's an indoor tournament it's a totally different matter so yeah the, 
there's something I've heard from photographers too at indoor events you're very dependent on there being good lighting yes something that's yes. not as obviously the sun is more reliable than indoor lighting I guess in some ways yes and no I mean the thing or it's less constant I guess it, yeah. the thing with indoor lighting is if it's good it's great because it's constant you have your settings you set them once and you, you're done with the sun you're always struggling to fight it like nothing's worse than a day where there's like scattered clouds and like the light changes like during the rally it's mm. so hard to keep up with that and sometimes it just happens and you have to like it's a crapshoot yeah Speaking of your travel schedule, I know you were saying that it was rough for you because you were home for like two and a half whole weeks last off season in December or November, December. No, almost more or, than eight weeks, almost eight, nine weeks. Right, but you almost nine weeks, which for some people will be like, "Wow, I get to rest finally." But for you, you're like, "No, no, no, I need to go out and shoot some more tennis players." So you went. I'm curious to hear more about the off season you had. Uh, you went to visit the training bases of both Donna Vekic yes. and Yulia Gerges. Exactly. And just tell me about that and like what you saw from being at a tennis player's off-season, which is something we hear that players talk about a lot, but from a, as an outside eye, what was it like uh, seeing a tennis player's off-season in action up, up close? Yeah, as you said, like, we hear a lot of talk about it, and players always mention, oh, the off-season was so, and I worked so hard, and I never, like, pretty much everybody else, I never experienced it, so this year I wanted to see what, what that's like, how that works, so I asked these two players, and they were kind enough to let me stick around for a few days and to see what it's like and it it was an eye-opening experience like I know I know what practice looks like and I know what players in the gym look like I've seen that before at tournaments but like to see it like in the condensed form it happens in during the off season like the way the days pan out like starting with fitness tennis more fitness even more tennis the days are so long it's such a grueling schedule it it's been like even though I've been in tennis for like seven years, it was it was an eye-opening experience. I didn't didn't expect it to be that hard, be that intense. Yes. Yeah. yeah no, it's true. And you see that I think that's part of why those offsets are part of why I always think January tennis for me is this is a sort of sidebar, but it's like the best because everybody comes in fresh, everybody comes in like in their peak fitness and ready to go, and they don't forget how to play tennis. So it's not like they need warm-ups. So sometimes it's like Brisbane matches, Australian Open matches can be some of the best matches of the year. Yeah, exactly. And oftentimes you hear like people say or like writers write an article and said like that's where the foundation for the season is being laid. And I always had problems kind of understanding how that works because you always you see the players practice at, at the tournaments. You think, oh, they practice all the time, but it's such a different, different kind of approach. And, and yeah. it's been it's been super interesting to see how that works. And I'm very grateful I got to do that. And thankfully it was it was a lot of fun. Quick gear question. I'm prepared not to understand much of this answer, but I'm guessing people are curious what you use uh, to shoot your photos, what equipment, and what you also use to edit. Usually you, you use two different cameras. I have one camera with a fixed 300mm lens. That's what I do most of the, the action shots, the back ends, the forehands, and that kind of stuff with. And then you have a secondary camera that has a more wide lens where you can take like shots of like shots that involve more people or scenery or stuff like that. And are that... You- are you very brand loyal? I know some people are fiercely brand loyal in the photography I am, you, world. You have to be. You make your you make your pick at some point, and then you can can go back and forth. Like I'm, I've always been an icon guy ever since I started like shooting motor racing. And once once you've bought a certain set of lenses, you have so much invested. Like literally, it's an investment. You don't go back and forth. So they're not compatible with each other. No, they're not. Like yeah. it's either you're either like an icon, Canon, or Sony, and these two, these three are not compatible. You can't use the same lenses and the same camera. So if you want to switch brands, you have to sell everything and get every single lens and every single camera from a new manufacturer. So no one really does that unless they're really fed up with their brand for some reason. And to edit, I'm using a software called Lightroom from Adobe. 
on a MacBook Pro, and that's where I load the photos in, and they get metadata assigned, like the names of the players and everything that's needed, to, so other people can work with the photos. Because you can't just dump like a big bunch of unnamed photos for people, because people, photos have to be searched and yeah, indexing them. Ex yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So they get metadata assigned, it and I do some very basic edits, like saturation and a bit of contrast and cropping, and that's it. Yeah. And then you put your photos on your website, which is very impressive. Uh, I feel like it's a, even people who follow you on Twitter, like go, your website is just like you can really dive so deep into your photos and see all the players you've taken, you know, more than a thousand, there's several players who've taken more than a thousand photos of, I think, on there yes. probably. Uh, yes. And can you tell about, uh, just plug, just basically, last thing, we'll sort of plug where you can find all the Jimmy photos. All my photos can be found on my website, which is j48tennis.net, one word. And that's, that's the database where all my photos go into, where it, my clients download their photos. But also, like, if you're, just, if you're a fan and you want to browse the photos, you can, you can do so. Everything is there and it's searchable. So if you're looking for a certain photo from Petra Kvitova from the US Open like three years ago, I'm pretty sure I have it. Yeah. And, and speaking of the, the players, I mean, the players do now, through agreements with you, use your photos on social media a lot. And we were saying, I was, you were posting last night the night session here. Uh, all four players, Osaka, Kennan, Kantavite, and Barty, all four of them posted uh, photos from you. Yes. Last night. So that's pretty cool. That, that complete that, coverage, 100%. That, that's really cool. And, and that's that's one of the things that makes the job so rewarding. And that's what got me hooked instantly. Like I was talking about the early feedback I got. And it's just, it felt, it felt, instantly felt like I was doing something that people liked and people that wouldn't be there if I wouldn't be doing it. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm filling a niche that's there. It might might be a small niche, but I think on a very small scale, what I do makes a difference. And that wasn't the feeling I had in my day job. So, and I think that's a great thing to say and to think about your work. But even if it's a small scale, like if I wouldn't be here tomorrow, I think people would notice. Yeah, and oh, I would definitely notice. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think you, you've made the tour a better, more beautiful place through your photos. Oh, and we you. thank you for that. And thank you for being here on NCR, Jimmy. Thank you for having me. So thank you very much to Jimmy for being on the show today, and thank you all for listening to No Challenges Remaining. If you want to follow along when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash nochallengesremaining. We're not on Facebook much, but we are still some sort of zombie presence there. We are more active on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis, and you can send us emails with any questions, comments, feedback that you might wish, nochallengesremaining at gmail.com. We are also now... For a few weeks on Patreon, we have a Patreon page set up for the podcast, patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. And we have over 100 backers on there already, which is pretty, pretty awesome, and pretty humbling and pretty cool and great for us. And thank you guys very much for all your support. We have a ton of gratitude for it. And now it is the time of the show where I will get to read the names of everybody who has backed us uh, at the challenger or above level since we last recorded a show. So thank you very much to our backers, including Jay Ruby, Greg Rosenthal, Burn It All Down, Anjo S., Richard Flowers, Tom Noteman, Carrie Quigley, Keith Adams, Aisha Richards, Colette Lewis, Harish, Sumit, Anne Tian, Helene Elliott, Maggie, Lucas Thompson, Steve Duffy, Kylie Kulnane, Charles Kim, Jonathan Holtz. John Eicher, Sophie Hamley, Geront F., Dana Hong, Chaco Cliff, Jimmy Piggott, Spana, 
Erica Jane Glamgoles, John Fisher, Ava Marsalkova, Rumdwolf Wong, Brian Rolick, Brett Halsey, Betty, Chuang Nguyen, and Jonathan Weinbaum. Thank you very much. And if you want to join that honor roll, patreon.com slash no challenges remaining is where to find us. We also earlier this week released Patreon only episode of our reactions to the Oscars. Spoiler, we were very happy that Parasite won defying our expectations and our foreboding fears that it would not go that way. Uh, We'll hopefully have some more Patreon-only content and discussions and stuff on our Patreon page throughout throughout our time doing it. So we hope you can join us there. And if not, that's okay too. Thank you for listening to No Challenges Remaining, and we will see you on here with another episode very soon. Bye, guys. Give us the green.